Welcome to the Nonfiction Podcast. I'm Deborah Campbell, an author, magazine writer, and professor of creative nonfiction in the Department of Writing at the University of Victoria. And I'm David Leach, a former magazine editor and a professor of creative nonfiction in the Department of Writing at the University of Victoria as well. Again, we are recording our voices today on the traditional and unceded territories of the Lekwungen and Wasanich peoples. And we are thrilled once again to have a very special guest joining us for this conversation. Susan Olding is the author of Pathologies, A Life in Essays, and the newly released collection, Big Reader. Welcome back to the Nonfiction Podcast, Susan. Thank you, David, and thank you, Deborah. It's a real delight to be here. Well, today we want to talk about uh, a thorny issue. It's the, the art, the craft, and especially the ethics involved in writing about other people, uh, especially family members in nonfiction prose. Anybody have some thoughts or, or kind of questions they, they want to uh, unpack about this kind of issue that we often try and uh, skirt around and avoid? Yeah, how do you do it, Susan? <laughs> <laughs> Get right to the point. Yeah, Susan, you're very you're very good at doing it. So I agree. Put her on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I mean, you know, there are two schools of thought, right? Or the two extreme schools of thought are, you know, uh, give if you write about your family, you have to give them a veto. I think it's Annie Dillard who says she does that, right? Uh, and then there's the uh, opposite school of thought, which is Anne Lamott's, if they had wanted, you know, if they had, if they hadn't wanted me to write, if they didn't want me to write about them, they should have treated me better, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, but I think um, it, it's obviously more complicated than either of those positions would suggest. And um, um, for myself, it's true. I, I mean, my, my very first, um, the first piece that I ever published is, is the, um, the title essay of pathologies. And um, I finished that piece and it was the first piece of writing that I felt good enough about, like that I felt had succeeded in the way that I wanted it to. It was, it was complete as far as I could make it. So I showed it to two friends and their sisters. And uh, one is a writer and one is a psychiatrist. And I gave it to them at the same time. And a couple of days later, um, my writer friend came back to me and said, oh, this is fantastic. You have to publish it. And a few, you know, a few hours later, her uh, sister, the psychiatrist said to me, Oh my God, it's wonderful. Of course, you can't publish it. And um, I chose to publish it, um, but with some trepidation. And it did have consequences. Not initially, though. Um, I chose to publish it in a literary journal. And of course, very few people read literary journals, unfortunately. And certainly my father um, did not read the literary journal, even though I did tell him about it. I told my family that I, or I told my mother and my father that I had written this piece and that it, I don't know what words I used. I certainly didn't show it to him in advance. I didn't give him a veto. Um, I, I, and I'm not sure I would handle it that way now, today. 
Um, but it felt very important to me, almost like a matter of identity, um, a matter of life and death, even that I should write this thing and have it out there. So um, anyway, he didn't read it. He didn't read it. He didn't read it. And finally, it came out in the book. And um, that was considerably later. And I, again, wrote to, I dedicated the book to my parents. And I wrote to them and went to visit them and brought them the book and talked to them about it and told them that they might um, find some parts of the book troubling and left it with them. And um, my dad decided that he didn't want to talk to me anymore and didn't want anything to do with me and didn't want my mother to have anything to do with me either. And um, that was a situation that lasted for about 18 months. Wow. So it was, uh, you know, and I, so obviously there were personal costs for both of us. My decision led to a great deal of hurt. Um, at the same time, I still, I, I don't regret having done it or written what I wrote. Part of the problem was he didn't read the whole book. He only read that essay. And um, he appears in quite a different light in other parts of the book, but he didn't get that far to know, know those things. So unfortunately, he had kind of a slanted opinion. You mentioned that you would do things or might do things differently uh, now. What, what, what might those different things be? Well, you know, it's easy for me to say now because yeah. he's dead. <laughs> and um, I think, um, you know, what I was writing about the difficulties of our relationship largely uh, caused by the fact that he was an alcoholic. And you can't really, he was a practicing alcoholic. He wasn't a reformed alcoholic. So you can't really talk to practicing alcoholics and have them accept that that's what they are because they, that's sort of, you know, by definition, <laughs> the nature of the problem. So, um, you know, I, I, I think probably I would have, um, I, I think if I were doing this now, I think I would be a little bit more, um, more specific about what I was trying to do and what I had done. I, I think I still would not uh, stop myself from writing it. I would not um, give this the parent in this case um a veto but i might in other circumstances and writing about other family members i certainly have i've i've asked permission i've showed them the piece while it's underway i've talked to them um i think one of the factors that you really have to consider or that i feel i have to consider is the power relationship what's the power dynamic and when a child is writing about a parent, that's one thing. When a parent is writing about a child, that's possibly another thing. Um, or when, when you're writing about others outside your family who, um, who, don't, you know, who don't have as much privilege as you do hmm. in one way or another. Interesting. What about, what about you, uh, Deb? You've written about a lot of people who've opened up about their lives in, in vulnerable situations as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is such a big ethical issue and ethical and emotional issue. Uh, family is obviously the closest one and we get a privileged view of our family because we live with them or, you know, in proximity to them. Um, whereas in the kind of um, immersive journalism I've done, I have lived with people, but they're not my family. And in some ways, 
in some ways that almost makes me feel more responsible for them because I've gone into their lives in order to write about them. Um, and, you know, you talk about consent, there's a lot of uh, schools of thought around um, people, you know, agreeing to be interviewed. I don't think people ever really know what it's like to be written about until they read themselves written about. So I sometimes wonder how well uh, consent really works uh, with that. Um, what, just to tell a story from my own experience um, with writing about family, I don't write a lot about family, um, but uh, in my last book I had, I think it was one paragraph about my father. Um, surely not flattering to him, but he should be flattered that I left out all the other possible <laughs> storylines. Anyway, so when the book came out, I only heard that he was upset because he'd been phoning all uh, relatives in our family and saying, look at page 89, look what she wrote about me on page 89. So they all ran out to buy copies. So then I, I had to think, okay. So then they all had their copies. And then when I finally saw him after he'd read it, he said, well, I guess if they make, uh, make this into a movie, I'll be playing Saddam Hussein. <laughs> and then I thought, well, that's actually a really good line. So if I ever have to write about this, I'm definitely using You're like, it. more material. Thanks. <laughs> He's a material machine, actually. Um, but, you know, I've also, I've had a lot of experience writing quite intimately about people and have had to make decisions at so many corners about what to, to keep. So in, in A Disappearance of Damascus, I write really closely about Ahlam, an Iraqi woman who became my really good friend and uh, then was arrested. And I had thought at the time it was because of me, but I was writing very, I'm writing very intimately based on interviews and conversations that I had with her over the course of months. And I was really wondering, how's she going to handle reading this book, um, reading about all kinds of things about herself? So one of the things I did was I, before it was published, I read her the book. She's fluent in English, but she doesn't, she's not going to read a book, okay? I mean, Arabic is her first language. Um, so, and I also, I knew that she would just say, oh, whatever you write, that's fine with me. So I read her the whole book. It took about four days. I left out any parts that didn't concern her, but it was a really fascinating experience. It was so, uh, it was writing about some of the most difficult times in her life, and I wanted her to know what it would be like for someone else to read them. And I also wanted to be sure uh, there were times when I couldn't fact check. I, I, I fact checked uh, as much as I could when I could confirm with a third party but there were lots of parts where I, I wasn't there and no one else was there that I could confirm with. And in that process, she would be crying or I would be crying and then she would stop me and say, actually, wait, no, no, uh, there's something else that happened here. And she would expand that and it really gave the book an additional layer of texture um, from her and, and accuracy, which was very important to me as well. Um, and so, she is a very, I would say, solidly rooted person, um, secure in who she is. She isn't someone who um, 
feels like she looks at herself through other people's eyes very much. Uh, I think a lot of people are not that way. You know, they're much more concerned about what people think about them, uh, anxious. The more anxious or insecure a person is, I think the more likely that writing about them um, is going to be very upsetting. Uh, so it, it was lucky for me that um, she's a secure person. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's a fundamentally an alienating experience to kind of read or see um, a kind of depiction or a representation in words or a profile of yourself. And I, I know that just from personal experience, anytime uh, I've been kind of profiled, it would say by a student uh, journalist, and I'm somebody who's who's written likely hundreds of profiles. It's it's how I got into uh, literary journalism. It's kind of a major tool that I that I use uh, in in uh, my writing. And and then kind of reading it, I was like, whoa, why did they choose those details? Or that sounds like that, that kind of that alienation uh, uh, effect of it and that visceral reaction. I was like, no, that's not quite right. Uh, uh, because you have this kind of self-image that you that you uh, uh, assume is right. There's also, an, I think, an interesting question of, of genre, and I always think of this because I I, I originally aspired, like so many of us, to be uh, a novelist uh, or short story writer, and and came out to UVic originally to study creative writing and took lots of fiction courses, in which, of course, I kind of borrowed heavily from my own life and other people's lives. But you know I, that was okay because I could uh, uh, transform it and then kind of moved into more um, a long form literary journalism uh, magazine uh, journalism that has a certain kind of uh, a quasi code of uh, ethics around that but at a certain point as you know even better Deb you have to kind of uh, wrestle with these questions and and the biggest kind of challenge I had was around my uh, first book which originally began as a long feature article uh, and all about the the death of a young man in um, uh, an adventure sport race in the the Bay of uh, Fundy and the uh, profound traumatic effect of his his death on the lives of his family and also the people who had tried to save him and in just the months if not years I spent kind of circling around that story um, uh, kind of slowly uh, acquiring information and building enough trust to uh, approach the the family members who really kind of opened themselves to my uh, to me and kind of shared all sorts of uh, details about their son uh, and and their brother so I could kind of recreate um, at least a, a little bit about his life and what he was kind of going through right up until the, the moment of his death. But just kind of the weight of that responsibility to be this kind of final rep public representation of, of uh, their child. And that's why I, I come back to what you were saying, Susan. Yeah, there's, a, there's definitely that extra kind of responsibility around the power relationship there uh, just a couple of just minor little funny uh, anecdotes that, that raise serious questions I was sitting in um, uh, uh, a writing workshop I think uh, you know in between uh, stories when we were on the break and I checked my email and <laughs> And again, I'm telling tales out of school here. It was an email from my wife that basically just said, you are never allowed to write about me ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Which 
search of a course I read to the class. And, and it, it was like the, uh, seemingly the most innocuous kind of travel story for, for Canadian Geographic. And I think part of the reaction was to the, the headline that they had written, but probably the depiction as well. And it was something like, she wanted like uh, uh, a sunny beach vacation. He wanted adventure in the jungle. They found it both in Costa Rica. It's like, you make me sound like some sun-seeking bimbo. Bimbo. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, and I, my defense was, you know, I come off as like the kind of, kind of a bumbling comic foil, but true. I Sorry, had David. No. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, she well, she I, I, the yeah, she, she did. I haven't, I haven't necessarily kind of written about her. So I haven't gone on vacation in a while either, but. Uh, but the other one a bit more closer to home and and uh, again as I, I kind of age into being like the dad memoirist uh, most of the writing I've been doing recently is like a parenting column for for Island Parent um, uh, just like 600 900 words every uh, couple of uh, months obviously I've got to write uh, about uh, family members and I've, I've got kind of two two kids who are now both teenagers uh, and sort of write little funny anecdotes about their activities or baseball or this uh, and then I wrote one, um, which I thought was funny, uh, uh, about this incident that uh, this the, this kind of series of little white lies that my uh, son at the time uh, told because he really wanted to have a, a, a Nerf gun birthday party, but was worried that uh, we weren't into kind of Nerf guns. So there was this kind of elaborate uh, uh, chain of, of deceit, which included him like allegedly finding a $50 bill in our... Uh, <laughs> Uh, backyard to go and and somebody giving them Nerf guns because one was like a pink bow and arrow that their son didn't want, which turned out not to be true. And uh, it was like all it, it was a, a funny kind of little anecdote. And and I kind of wrote it all up, and it, and it was due the next day. And I thought oh, I'll show it to him; he'll he'll find it funny as well. And I showed it to him, and he just kind of broke into tears. Uh, because it kind of just brought he he still felt guilty about the whole uh, experience and it just kind of brought back this shame for him and I just felt awful but also glad that I had shown it so I immediately had to nix it and and completely uh, write a new article uh, from from uh, scratch but it was just this kind of reminder of how yeah we we see ourselves in, in the story in different ways so I've always been really kind of careful to uh, especially show my kids uh, the the um, uh, the drafts of any of these seemingly innocuous kind of um, semi-humorous uh, articles appearing in in a regional uh, parenting uh, magazine just to let them have that that final say having kind of witnessed first can that the just the emotional kind of consequences for them as well so well absolutely now as they enter their teens because it's not as if they won't find out about it right somebody exactly. in their group their friendship group the parents are, have read the piece they'll talk about it if they don't know in advance teens are so concerned about you know how they look to others as deb was saying earlier those are the people that you really have to be careful of and um so yeah great save there david <laughs> well, well, but that raises another question as well we live in this like, social media age in which we're all kind of engaging in these autobiographical uh, uh, confessions. How does that kind of shift the conversation on, on the, the ethics of, of writing a, uh, a, about each other or, or does it? 
Well, I'm not sure really, because I think, um, you know, with social media, um, we are, or we like to think of ourselves in control of the picture that we're putting forward, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, so you know, it, it's another thing entirely when someone else takes control of that picture. And, and that's why, I mean, it can be so jarring, even if it's something that seems to us innocuous. In fact, that's quite often the case that people get are less upset, in, in my experience at least, I mean, apart from that example with my dad, um, the, the few times that I've had any objection um, from anyone in my family particularly, um, but, but also outside the family, they, they weren't, um, you know, they weren't things that I would have thought would be at all problematic. And they just, um, you know, they're just little things like, you know, little details, just the way that you presented them really make them feel insecure, maybe. And that's, that's a big no. So, um, and yet we can't realistically, nor do we necessarily want to check everything over. I mean, with with the individuals involved, um, it's not investigative journalism. But, um, you know, we, we are telling our story and we have, we have our own perspective on whatever it is that happened. So it does get tricky for sure. Yeah, and I think there's, there's also a big risk in protecting people and then writing something that is uh, a puff piece, essentially untrue, um, in order to safeguard their feelings about themselves. Um, or essentially protecting ourselves from their feelings towards us for having written it. And that self-protective place is a very censorious place for a writer to be. Uh, and I think there is a risk of sort of um, soft, putting a soft lens on everything or, or pulling back from the key questions that, uh, that we, we may think we're doing out of the right motives, but I wonder sometimes if it's not a bit of a, a bit of a cop out. Um, what, what, do, what do you think, Susan? Yeah, I do. I think, I mean, I, I mean, it doesn't, it makes for um, squishy, not interesting writing, right? It's if we, if we pull back from saying what we really see and what we really feel. But of course, that's really risky or can be and really scary. And so, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's never, never an easy decision. Um, but I love what you did with um, the woman that you were writing about, Deb, and, and reading the book to her. I mean, that's so moving and also so productive for you. You got you, you ended up getting greater accuracy and greater emotional truth by doing that. And it's not something that everyone can do in every circumstance, but I think that even memoirists can, um, you know, do that kind of, maybe not exactly that, but can talk to the people they're writing about the stories that involve other people and say, so how do you remember this? What do you think about this? And maybe they're going to say it exactly the way you remember it, or maybe they're going to say something completely different and you're going to have uh, another story to add texture to your own. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point. Again, back to my particular obsession, but the, just writing about other people is completely complicated by the vagaries of autobiographical uh, memory. We might remember key family experiences in, in different ways, big or small, from other family members who were also uh, there. We're, we're 100% sure we're right, or at least 90, 90%, but that's that's not necessarily true. So yeah, there is this kind of importance of negotiating that, that fuzzy uh, reality reality of, of memory uh, in our writing. I mean, uh, David Carr does uh, such a kind of interesting job in like fact-checking his own memory in, in, a, in A Night of the Gun. But again, that's something that we can't all always do. But I like um, uh, how you, you kind of talk about foregrounding that nature of memory and, and the possible kind of opportunities to ask other people how they, they uh, uh, remembered things, which makes things more truthful. The, the fact that, that there, there isn't necessarily a, a single verifiable uh, memory of, of a particular event, that, that it's constantly shaped by who we are, were then and, and how we kind of uh, evolve because memory is, is um, always changing in interesting ways. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the whole idea of foregrounding memory as a subject itself in the memoir or, or um, you know, it, it really allows the reader to start asking those questions of, of you know, of the, allows readers to ask those questions of themselves. And that makes for a super interesting and engaging read. Yeah, I, I think there's like I, I've always wanted to edit uh, an anthology of like the introductions and caveats that uh, nonfiction uh, book writers sort of add at the beginning of their the books that sort of say, well, yeah, this is my truth, and I remember these things, and uh, or, or, I've, or I or I think of Sebastian Younger in in. Um, uh, oh, the perfect storm. We actually uses different forms of typography to kind of list the kind of uh, what's completely verifiable, what's uh, speculative. Uh, Jan Lars Jensen, who is a, a, um, a, a, an author at the same time I was a student at UVic, who has a wonderful, incredible memoir called uh, New Nervous Breakdown, uh, Losing My Mind in Literature, basically about the, his kind of uh, mental breakdown and, and um, uh, attempted suicide with the imminent publication of uh, a sci-fi novel that uh, uh, he wrote but he kind of says right up front you know I was on some like heavy meds during this experience which <laughs> can alter some of my perspectives kind of read it with a, a grain of salt while he's kind of writing about different people in his his life so kind of a not a really acknowledging that the intense uh, subjectivity as well I think is is super uh, important rather than saying yeah this is the written on stone tablets version of the truth that I'm putting out there and if somebody reads it it's like well that's not my truth absolutely I'm wondering if we can come back to that um to that word responsibility we were talking about our responsibility as writers to the individuals that we're writing about um, but I took a, a course with uh, an online course with Alexander Chi in last summer, how to, um, he, uh, oh, the thief of lives, he called it. It was about writing autobiographical fiction, actually. And um, he raised a really interesting example. He, there's, he talked about Alice Monroe and um, the, the feelings about her in 
Wingham, um, people being very upset. She said that she took a lot of her stories, the ideas for her stories from newspaper, local news, right? And many of the people involved apparently are pretty upset about it. Uh, and they won't necessarily say so outright um, or have their names mentioned because they're afraid that Alice Monroe fans will, will come back at them and say, how dare you? Uh, but from their point of view, this is their story, not her story to tell, et cetera, et cetera. So Chi was talking about this and saying, well, you know, what gives her the right to write about this? Um, what's her responsibility to her community? And he mentioned the class difference between Alice Monroe and the people that she was writing about and so on. And my feeling at the time was, you know, this is a little bit more complicated than he's making it out because there was also a class difference between Alice Monroe and those people early in her life in the opposite direction. And so um, she might not feel that those, that, that really is her community. <laughs> um, but, but his point was that we are writing um, within communities and what is our responsibility to those communities? So he brought up the, uh, a counterexample, Valeria Luiselli in um, The History of My Teeth. She apparently uh, interviewed garment, the garment workers that she was writing about and asked them to sort of improve her story. And that all became part of the book itself. So it's a different approach to community entirely. And I'm wondering if either of you have any thoughts on that. Well, I, mean, I think if Alice Monroe got her community to like jointly edit her stories, she wouldn't have the Nobel Prize. I'm kind of stu stuck on the image of angry Alice Monroe fans <laughs> doxing people and like, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> There's the Monroe stands out there. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I sometimes think we're, we're putting so many barriers in front of writers and what they can write and writing is hard enough. Um, you know, when I think about writing about communities that you know intimately, I mean, Alice Monroe is a fiction writer. She really is a fiction writer. She's yeah. actually using raw material, but these are not lightly, lightly cloaked sort of auto fiction, no. uh, you know? Um, yeah, so putting new rules on how, because she's famous now, she shouldn't write about people back then when she was poor. It's sort of very funny logic, um, strange kind of modern logic. But one, one of the things I think about more, more than, the, more than the fuzzy reality of memory is our interpretation of memory. And um, one of the writers uh, I, I really like who writes, I would say a lot of autobiographical fiction is Sigrid Nunes. Mm. And uh, in one of her, in her first quote unquote novel, which is based on her family, uh, a Feather on the Breath of God, she talks about wanting to be able to write about them without bitterness or self-pity. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that, you know, the difficulty sometimes isn't to remember, but it, how, how do you convey it without the, all the, emo the, the sort of simple emotions, without the simple emotions that can come from, I mean, often we're writing about things because they're fraught. Mm -hmm. um, so how can we be... I, I, I not not uh, censoring, but being fair uh, 
by that I don't mean by I don't mean censorship, and I don't mean. But how do we be fair, even uh, if at the time we might have felt bitterness or self pity or any of these normal normal human emotions? So I think that's that can be a real challenge in in conveying uh, reality. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really think that's true, but I also think that one of the gifts of writing itself is that it can help us to a place where um, where it's where we see it differently than we might have seen it when we begin the work, and mm -hmm. so we we do enrich and complicate the story as we go. Um, just through the process of writing it and trying to look at it from different perspectives. Um, and, you know, I'd, I mean, we can talk about writing as therapeutic or not, but I, I mean, I think that there is no question that when you're dealing with a traumatic experience or a fraud, even just a fraud experience, it can be therapeutic to write it. But then you have to stand back and say, okay, now what? Now what? Now what? what what's missing here? What don't I have? And um, yeah, I think it, it, it gets to the heart of, of how, how we're portraying people in all their complexity. Yeah, I think complexity is so key. And uh, again, you talked about kind of finding metaphor uh, in, in details. And I think a metaphor and symbol is a way into some of that, uh, making some of that complexity cohere. And I always think of um, Alison Bechtel's wonderful kind of graphic memoir, Fun mm -hmm. Home, and a series of uh, graphic memoirs. And obviously her father was dead when she wrote this, but she's writing about her in, entire uh, uh, family, writing about kind of deeply traumatic events uh, Event, suppressed uh, sexuality, uh, but does it in such a kind of complex way, but layering it over with these literary references and this this kind of uh, sense of the mythical echoes in his life uh, as as well, and with a with a kind of a searching love too. She's discovering mm -hmm. something about him and about herself through the journey of of this uh, book, and, and very kind of open uh, uh, about it as as well. So I mean, I love just... that phrase, searching love. I think that's kind of that kind of encapsulates the attitude that we need when we're approaching writing about family members anyway. Uh -huh. But I, I come back and I'm also kind of sympathetic to to um, Deb's perspective about like these need this this seeming need for these kind of rigid rules, the thou shalt not mm -hmm. of of uh, writing that again, I think in a digital age, because we're so more closely kind of uh, scrutinized and able to be called out uh, are that much more prevalent. And again, uh, one of the, my favorite kind of provocative quotes uh, is is a famous one from uh Joan uh, Didion, who kind of blurs that literary journalism and, and memoir in such kind of interesting ways when she writes, my only advantage as a reporter is that I am so physically small, so temperamentally unobtrusive, and so neurotically inarticulate that people tend to forget that my presence runs counter to their best interests. And it <laughs> always does. That is one last thing to remember. Writers are always selling somebody out 
And I share that with students and they're like, ah, I'll start running around the room essentially. <laughs> well, what does that mean? No, you can't say that. Oh. But it's, what, what, uh, what do you think? Are we like, even despite our best intentions and our kind of flowery ethics and our fact checking, aren't, aren't we ultimately kind of vampires? Aren't we kind of drawing the lifeblood of other, other people to kind of feed our, our art? Or is that an extreme point of view? <laughs> Well, I think there is some truth to it. <laughs> I do. But I also think there's another side of it. I think we are, we can't, we are always, I mean, we're, are, we're trying to be true to the story and to the emotional experience, whatever it might be. So if that means that we're selling somebody out, maybe, but we're also um, drawing somebody in. And I think that as we're writing, we sometimes forget that these stories will go out into the world and touch people and move people and can have profound effects on people's lives. And, and I mean, how many times have you heard from the people that, not just the people you wrote about, but other people, how important reading those stories you know, has been for them and how it's helped them understand something important about their own lives. Um, and you might not have expected it, right? I can't think of a better note to end on, actually, Susan. Um, that was just a wonderful exploration of, uh, as, as David said, a very thorny, thorny subject, but one that um, concerns so many, so many writers. Um, so this is our actually our last official podcast for the summer. Uh, there may be some surprises uh, down the road. And um, yeah, such a pleasure having you, Susan. Yes, oh, thank th you. Thanks so much. And again, congratulations on uh, your your new book. And uh, yeah, I have to kind of dive into the horrors of writing to to get to the joys of, of rewriting over the next uh, summer. We we might throw a, another episode or two out there. But uh, uh, yeah, um, interested listeners can uh, maybe drop uh, drop me a line at uh, dleach, D-L-E-A-C-H at uvic.ca if you uh, uh, have any other kind of guests or topics topics that you'd like us to uh, explore in the fall. Uh, again, thank you, uh, Deb. It's always fun uh, to have these, these conversations. And thank you again, Susan. Thank you both.